Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Good and gracious Father, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, our single concern. In whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, listen now with open ears to the book that we love from Genesis 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise, everything he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against him, he struck Jacob on his hip socket. And Jacob's hip came out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked the man, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. For this reason, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle attached to the hip socket, for he struck him on the hip socket, at the thigh muscle. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the second volume of his epic Lord of the Rings trilogy, J.R.R. Tolkien writes about a, a band of mythical creatures on a journey to destroy a ring with the power to decimate all of Middle-earth. There's a particular point in the story of the two towers, which you'll remember if you've read the, read the book or watched the movie, in which two of these characters, who are hobbits named Merry and Pippin, they get separated from the rest of the band, and they get lost in a, in a forest called Fangorn. While they're in the forest Fangorn, they meet this immense tree-like creature called an Ent. 
They're initially terrified at, at the ant's power and size, but they come to realize that the ant doesn't mean them any harm. And so they ask him what his name is. And this is what the ant, whom later, later they've, they've come to call Treebeard, says about his name. I want you to listen to what he says. He says to them, my name is growing all the time. And I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of the things they belong to in my language. In the old Entish, as you might say. That creature, Treebeard, he realizes what many of us in the modern Western world don't all the time. That names matter. Names matter. I remember this came home to me for the first time as a teenager. The very first girl that I ever took out on a date broke up with me because I called her the wrong name by accident. My wife Monica and I, by the time we had gotten pregnant and we're going to have our, our first child, we had, we had been working and serving in churches for several years and so had gotten to know some amount of several hundred people. And so we had a difficult time naming our oldest son because we'd pick a name and they'd be like, oh, that reminds us of this guy. I don't think so. And that, that went on for month after month after month as we tried to, as we tried to name our, our little son. In our own culture, we don't often think much of names. We just think they mean, you know, Frank or Tom, George, Pam. But other cultures understand this in a way that we don't. They get that, that in the words of Treebeard, names tell our stories. They say something about us. I remember in a former church that I observed traveling to be with some of our international partners in South Africa and spending time in the shantytown neighborhood of Soweto, and meeting at the church community that, that we worked with together there, families who would introduce me to their children, and they would name their children things like future, or peace, or justice. They understood what we oftentimes miss, that names matter. They carry our identity. They tell our story. And that's true for Jacob, the person whom we meet in this story. God here affects a deep and profound transformation in a human life. And the way that that's pictured for us is by God changing his name. And so I want to invite you to simply stand in the darkness by this mysterious wrestling match and listen together with me as God transforms Jacob by asking him, what is your name? Now, the text that we heard together begins by saying, that night Jacob got up and took his, took his family and crossed a river called the Jabbok. That night that this text refers to, this is this is the night that Jacob's entire life had been leading up to. To color in a, a bit of context for you, Jacob is a, is a twin brother with his brother Esau to Isaac and Rebekah, two figures we 
we come to hear about through much of the middle part of the book of Genesis. Jacob is the younger brother by mere seconds. In fact, the biblical narrator tells us that Jacob enters the world grabbing the heel of his brother. And that's why his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, they name him Jacob. That means in Hebrew, the language this part of the Bible was first written in. It means heel grabber. It could also mean something like, like supplanter. And Jacob grows into that identity, the grabber, and then some. If you were to go and read the story of Jacob's life in the book of Genesis later today, you'd see someone who spends much of his entire life grabbing, grabbing at love, grabbing at money, grabbing at, at position in a society in which as the younger brother he didn't have any. Two different times, Jacob swindles his older brother Esau out of their family inheritance, snatches it right away from him. The last time that he had laid eyes on Esau was some 20 years before. And the last time they spoke, Esau was swearing on his mother's grave that the next time he saw his little brother Jacob, he was going to kill him. And now, this night, Jacob is going back home. The grabber knows he's about to see his brother in the morning. When I was a kid in our neighborhood, one of my younger brothers had a reputation for being able to, to strike deals where he would swindle many of the other kids in our neighborhood out of, out of baseball cards or toys or, or video games and such. And he was so good at it that my other brother and I, when we were kids, started calling him Conman T. Ripoffer. That was his nickname in our house growing up. And this was who Jacob was. Conman T. Ripoffer was about to, in the morning, meet the brother whom he spent his life swindling. But then it happens. Under the cover of darkness, this mysterious stranger leaps at Jacob and they begin to tangle with each other. Jacob and this stranger they, they lash at one another, they struggle in this silent, exhausting chest match that we're told lasts through the night. And as the first pale rays of daylight begin to break, just like it seems like Jacob might be getting the upper hand on his attacker, all of a sudden, with just a touch, he's crippled. His hip's out, he can't move. And in that moment, in just the beginnings of daylight, he can see his adversary. The face that Jacob look into, looks into at that moment is a face more fierce than the face of death itself. Jacob comes to discover that it's the face of love. Jacob in this moment realizes that he has been wrestling with God. So he comes to name the place after this moment. When to his own shock, he sees God and lives to tell the tale. I want to invite you, as we watch this story unfold, 
to do what Jacob does in this moment. To come to see God here for yourself. Jacob has been reaching and grabbing every day of his life. But God here, in this moment under the cover of night, he gives Jacob the one thing that Jacob has been, never been able to clutch at or swindle for himself. God gives to Jacob the gift of transformation. And so God symbolizes this by asking Jacob, what is your name? It's a fascinating exchange. Jacob clinging for dear life onto his adversary says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the blessing that this stranger gives to Jacob is the gift of a changed name. Which is a way of saying in that world, the gift of becoming a new person. The gift of deep change. When does Jacob see God? When is, when is Jacob's life forever altered? Jacob comes to see the face of God when he suffers what one writer calls the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. Jacob comes to finally see God and do business with God at the point in which all of Jacob's stuff, his fortune, all of that is gone and he is utterly helpless and simply throwing himself for dear life on God. If you read the story of Jacob's life, you read that he has actually several encounters with God through his life. But until this one, Jacob always is trying to bargain with God to get the upper hand. It's only here, when Jacob comes completely to the end of his rope in life, when Jacob starts wanting God himself instead of wanting to use God for himself. And I think that there's something for us to notice in that. I think most often, God does not, in our lives, massage us or cajole us into a deeply transformed life. Most often, God wrestles us into a transformed life. God uses the raw materials of, of the very worst of our lives. Of pain, conflict, sickness, helplessness. God uses these kinds of things to bring us to the end of ourselves. And in that moment to actually truly see and encounter him. There's a Russian writer named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who writes really grippingly about this in his own life. He was somebody who, in the beginning of the 20th century, lived in the, in the upper crust of Russian society. He was an intellectual and a, and a writer. He was quite wealthy. And then after the Soviet takeover around the middle of the 20th century, he was arrested and imprisoned in a gulag by the Soviet regime. And he spent years and years suffering in terrible conditions in the Soviet gulag. 
But that prison in his life, it actually became, it actually became the site of his own deep transformation. Later on in his life, he wrote about those experiences. And I want you to listen to what he writes about that experience of being imprisoned and left for dead. He says this, it was granted to me to carry far away from my, to carry away, excuse me, from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of youthful success, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good, and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And then he says this, that is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, bless you, prison." I nourished my soul there. And I say without hesitation, bless you prison for having been in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. That is someone who's experienced the gift of magnificent defeat. This is what it looks like when God wrestles us into transformation. I saw this moment in a profile that I read about the comedian Stephen Colbert as well, too. Several years ago, he, as a, as a successful comedian, had the opportunity to take over the iconic Late Show on CBS, and right as he was beginning his work on The Late Show, he did a rare personal interview in which he told some of his own life's story. And I've, I've been fascinated by him because though he's a, a public comedian and television figure, he's also a devout Roman Catholic follower of Jesus. He, he teaches kids Sunday school in his, own, in his own neighborhood church on the weekends. And, and as I read this profile, I was surprised to discover that he actually had gone through quite a lot of suffering in the young years of his life. When he was 10, both his father and two of his siblings died in a tragic plane crash. And he talks about that, that time in, in this interview. And I want you to listen to what he says. He says this. He says, boy, did I have a bomb go off in my life when I was 10. That was quite an explosion. Then he says this. But I learned to love it. He unfolded how his faith in God, how his relationship with his mother buoyed him through the trauma of, of those experiences and helped him develop a tenacious kind of gratitude. And then he says this, that might be why you don't see me as someone angry and working out my demons on stage. It's that I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. I've come to love the thing that I most wish had not happened. 
this is what you can say when God has wrestled you into transformation. That you can be grateful for even the very worst because it's in those moments that you come to see God in a way that you never otherwise will. And so I want to invite you, as you find yourself at those junctures, to do what Jacob does, to struggle with God, to struggle faithfully with God. When you get laid off, when the ultrasound reveals a problem, when you get the phone call that shatters your world, when you are at your darkest in life, when the person whom one day in the past you had said, I do to, tells you one day that they don't anymore. Could it be in those moments that the gracious God of the universe actually intends to meet you and to wrestle you into transformation, into the daylight of a changed life? You know, the routes that we often take in those junctures in our lives are, are either, are either self-medication on the one hand or despair on the other. But Jacob here shows us a different way. Uh, Jacob shows us what it looks like to hang on to God in those moments and to be willing to say, I'm not going to let this go unless you bless me. I won't let this go until you bless me. Now, there's a, there's a fascinating moment as Jacob discovers who it is that he's wrestling that transpires. The, the biblical narrator tells us that, that just as Jacob thinks that he's about to win, that the mysterious stranger strikes him on his hip socket. Now that, that word in our English Bibles is actually probably not the most helpful way of describing what happens in this moment. Uh, that word in the, in the Hebrew language, in the language that this part of the Bible was originally written in, actually means something more like, like a light touch. Like he just barely touched Jacob. And this is when Jacob realized that he's grappling with God. And yet somehow he's still alive. So what is it that God does here? God wins against Jacob by coming to him not in a display of strength, but in a display of weakness. God, as it were, wins by losing here. The wrestler's weakness is stronger than Jacob's strength. Any of you who have had children, uh, you, you, know, you know this dynamic, or uh, all of you kids who just walked in, you know what this is like. When my kids were, were little, uh, all of the time, all three of them wanted to wrestle with dad whenever I would get home from the office. And so what would I do with them? I'd get down on the floor with them, and I would deliberately restrain my strength. I'd, I'd wrestle with them in weakness, not in my full strength. Why? Because I had like 150 pounds on them and didn't want to put them in the hospital. And so I'd engage them in weakness. And that's just what the Lord does with Jacob here. There's an ancient Christian teacher named Ambrose of Milan who in a sermon that he preached on this passage, he notices how this moment 
of God coming to someone in weakness, it foreshadows how God would one day come to all of us in weakness in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, God would assume all the weakness and confines of a mortal and impoverished Middle Eastern human life. God would bear the weakness of being betrayed by a friend. God would bear the weakness of injustice of a midnight kangaroo court trial. God will bear the weakness of terrible suffering and a sacrificial death to win the ultimate victory. You see, Christ on the cross is the God of the universe winning the ultimate victory in what seems like the ultimate defeat. And so because of Jesus, you and I, we can also meet God in our moments of greatest weakness. I can, I, can say this, I can say this is true in my own story. Uh, the most terrible junctures of my own life's journey. Uh, most especially watching a, a parent die a terrible death from cancer as a young college student. I would not wish on my worst enemy but for the ways that I met God in that time, and the ways that that, that that experience changed me, deepened me, matured me, I wouldn't trade those for the world. And if you are willing to struggle well with God in those moments in your own life, I think you will discover the same thing. You will find yourself limping into the daylight of a transformed life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.